All right, let's open our Bibles to Judges. Judges chapter 17 and 18 this evening. If I had to title this evening's service, it would be, You Reap What You Sow, or a phrase that I remember my mother telling me when I was young, What Goes Around Comes Around. And um, as we look at Judges 17 through the very final chapter, chapter 21, we're going to find that this is really like an epilogue to the book of Judges. It's really like an appendix, if you will, because we've already gone through the seven different periods of time. Uh, They're they're, they're characterized in the book of Judges, seven different periods. And last time we got together, a week before last, was Samson. And so that is the last... Uh, period of the judges. And what we have here from chapter 17 to the end is really an epilogue. And these chapters that we're going to be reading aren't necessarily in chronological order. In fact, um, the couple of chapters that we're going to be looking at tonight, 17 and 18, probably go somewhere toward the beginning of, uh, somewhere in the beginning of the time of the judges. And there's good reason to uh, believe that as we go and we'll get into that. But um, so... We're going to be looking mostly at the tribe of Dan this evening. And and Dan was one of those tribes that was entrenched in idolatry and a major player in the downfall of Israel. Because it wasn't just the tribe, because the tribe ultimately uh, uh, went up north, as we'll see, and uh, influenced the whole northern ten tribes. And as a result of that influence, they influenced the southern two tribes. And we know the result of, those, of that idolatry and disobedience. And those were two captivities that each of those different uh, kingdoms, in a will. The, the northern kingdom went into captivity in 722 B.C. by the, uh, the Assyrians. And the southern two tribes went into captivity in around 606 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And it was all because of idolatry. They, they, their, their lives, they, just, they weren't submitted to God. And as we looked at Samson's life, we saw a man who uh, through, had some semblance of pure... He, had some, he was going through the motions, you know, having seven locks of hair. We know seven is a significant number in the Bible. And, you know, had a Nazarite vow on his life. And so he had a, 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 a semblance of godliness, but he was certainly denying the power of God that God wanted to use this man's life. And as we get into what we're reading now, this is really just more of the, the general feel of this time. In fact, all throughout the book of Judges, you'll, you'll notice, uh, and, and tonight you'll see it twice, where there was no king in Israel because the monarchy really hadn't begun. David hadn't been on the throne, or I'm sorry, Saul um, hadn't been king yet. So this is um, time before this. So the, the time of Judges was a time of decline. It was a time of failure when the children of Israel should have been thriving and enjoying this new land that God had brought them into instead of enjoying it and really uh, following the Lord and walking with him. The opposite rather happened. They were supposed to go into those lands and remove all of the enemies in those lands, those idolaters that God had told them to go in and wipe everything out. And many, and they all refused to do the job 100%. And as a result, they were remnants of old pagan um, cultures. And those cultures began to rub off. Isn't that true? Why is it? You know, did you ever wonder? Why is it that godliness isn't the thing that rubs off? It's, it seems to 
be more often than not, it's, it's, the, it's the bad attitude, it's the wrong thing that um, when a believer is in that environment for any length of time, instead of being a, an agent for good on that evil culture, sometimes it can be just the opposite, where the evil culture starts to wear away like water on sandstone on the believer, and then the believer just kind of gets assimilated into an evil culture. And so that's exactly what happened to Israel as a whole. And it's interesting, there is a, um, an interesting verse in Genesis chapter 49. It was when Jacob, you remember, in his last moments as he was blessing his 12 sons, he said this about the tribe of Dan. He says, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heel so that its rider shall fall backward. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. And it, it's interesting. It's a very ominous sort of um, uh, prophecy to prophesy over the tribe of Dan, but we'll see tonight and we're going to hopefully develop this as the night goes on, just how this beginning of idolatry, what it really did. And we're going to look at some very specific uh, hallmarks or, or, or um, milestones along the life of not only Dan, the tribe of Dan, but the tribe of, uh, of Israel as a whole. And we're going to see how what we're seeing tonight and what we'll read about will be the precursor to something that's even more, it just got worse and worse and worse and ultimately led both uh, kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdom, into captivity. So, you know, even though these, uh, all the tribes were guilty of immorality and idolatry, the tribe of Dan seems to be the leader of the pack and ultimately, again, was instrumental in causing the northern and the southern tribes to fail. They were perhaps the spark that consumed the entire forest. And what I'd like to show to you is just a, a high-level summary of the idolatry of Dan, and also um, we'll see this in the northern uh, ten tribes. Tonight we'll see Micah's idolatry in Ephraim. We'll also see the Danites stealing the graven image and, and the Levite from Micah's home. We'll see the Danites then going back and, and dis, or going and destroying a city up in the northern part of Israel called Leshem, which is today called Tel Dan or Dan. And then we're going to see later on in time the results of these things. And it really goes into the time during Jeroboam's reign after the kingdom had split in two after Solomon's death. We know that Jeroboam, who himself was an Ephraimite, which I think is very interesting compared to what we're uh, looking at tonight, he was guilty of idolatry and set up two centers of worship, one in Dan and one in Bethel. And also, we're going to see how this ultimately leads to Israel's captivity by the Assyrians. So, you, you do reap what you sow, you know, as, as we looked at in the, this, uh, this, this title of the message tonight. What goes around comes around, and you do. You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. In Proverbs chapter 22, verse 8, it says, He who sows iniquity will reap sorrow, and the rod of his anger will fail. In Galatians chapter 6, it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh, 
will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And you recall in 1 Kings chapter 18, there was a time when uh, Elijah was going up against the prophets of Baal, and they were having a contest of who's really God, and the God that uh, responded by fire would be the one that they would serve. And notice what Elijah um, said. He came and he, to all the people, and he said, How long, and he's speaking to the Israelites as well as the prophets of Baal, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, if Baal is God, follow him. But the people answered him, not a word. Not a word. Finally, in Joshua, actually we're almost there. In Joshua 24, you remember what Joshua said, speaking to the children of Israel before his death. He said, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity. And in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. And he said, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so this, these are great exhortations to a group of people and not, at this time that we're referring to now in the time of the judges. But I've got to be honest, as I read these scriptures, I, it, it dings me right in the heart because I think of America. And I think of all these scriptures apply to us. There are so many idols in our lives, and they're not idols that, they're not teraphim, they're not things that are sculpted with a sculpting tool. They're not made of metal necessarily. But there are things that we hold near and dear to our heart, and we'll do anything to keep them, and we'll do anything to secure them. In Proverbs chapter 14, it says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but, the, but its end is the way of death. And we're going to see that tonight as the tribe of Dan, the, 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 the natural man, he has his thoughts, and he goes on his way. And without consulting the Lord, it is a disaster. It is always a disaster when we do not consult the Lord. When you follow your feelings, when you follow what seems right, usually it ends in disaster. You can never trust your feelings too much. God has given us feelings, and he's given us uh, intuition. He's given us this, this other sense to kind of feel something that might not be right or might be good. We must be careful in times like that because the devil and our flesh know how to use that. Our flesh is working against us because the devil uses that flesh, that old nature. He uses it to pound you over the head time and time again, but we must not let him have precedence in our life. Amen? So we must be careful. And, you know, even for the believer, we know that there are consequences. You know, the, the tribe of Dan, I really wouldn't call them believers. But they, they, they were certainly the children of God. As far as uh, God was concerned, he loved them. But they went their own way. And they brought a snare on the entire country. But we know even as believers today, here in America in 2020, there are consequences for sin and rebellion. There must be. If God is a God of love, that means he also has to punish sin. He has to punish wrongdoing. He has to punish rebellion. Because that's what a good father does. 
Any good father, any good mother, when it sees its child doing something wrong, going the wrong way, it behooves the parent to stop them in their tracks and say, honey, you're going the wrong way. You're going the wrong way. Stop and think about what you're doing. No, I'm going to do it anyway. And then you say, honey, stop and think about what you're doing. Have you ever had those times with your parents? (laughs) I have. I've been so stubborn. No, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do it my way. And my mom was wise enough to say, okay, see ya. (laughs) And I'd go and I'd make a mess. And I'd come back and I'd say, mom, you are so right. And if she's watching tonight, she'll be going, amen to that. Made a mess of your life. Tried to tell you what to do. And you didn't do it. And you reap what you sow. So the tribe of Dan is no different. Nations, individuals, it's all the same to the Lord. He gives nations much more time to repent. Nationwide he does. But individuals, sometimes, sometimes not so much. Because we don't have that much time. We have 70 or 80 years. But nations can live on for hundreds of years. I love what happened in Genesis 15 where God gave the, he kept the Israelites in Egypt for 430 years. And why? He said the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. In other words, he was giving in the land of Canaan that the Israelites were going to go into, those people groups, those seven nations that God had specified, God says, I'm giving them more time to repent. He's already given them hundreds of years to repent. He says, I'm going to give them a little more time. But there is a time when the hammer falls. And God knows when that time is. We don't have that luxury of knowing when judgment is going to fall or when the chastening hand of God is going to come down and even chasten his child. He did that with David, didn't he? After David and Bathsheba, he got away with it seemingly for about a year. And during that year, David was just tore up But his sin had a consequence, and God gave him a year to turn from it, to repent of it, to confess it. And David, he says, my, it's like my my insides were like dry, dried up. My tongue and my mouth was dried up like a potsherd. All my moisture, I just felt like I was just drying up, shriveling up, a washed up man of God. And that's the way he felt until Nathan busted him. Remember that? And he says, David, you're the man. And David finally came clean. And what a glorious thing. But there is consequence. Let's get into Mike, uh, or get into Judges chapter 17. It says, Now there was a man from the mountains of Ephraim whose name was Micah. Now Micah is a name that means who is like Jehovah. And what an interesting thing, because as we see this man Micah, he was actually nothing like Jehovah. He had the name who was like Jehovah, but he certainly wasn't living like Jehovah. And the mountains of Ephraim uh, are right up here in this... Um, Let's see here. Oh, okay. Maybe I can't do this. Okay, there we go. The mountains of Ephraim are right around here, because right here is the Jordan River, and right to the west side of the Jordan River is a mountain range here. And so those mountains, uh, somewhere in this area was where he lived. And so, verse 2, it says, And he said to his mother, notice, The 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you, and on which you put a curse, even saying it in my ears, here is the silver with me. I took it. (laughs) And his mother said, May you be blessed by the Lord. Jehovah, she says. Isn't it kind of funny? 
as we get, as we get in here, you're going to find the hypocrisy in all of this. Talking about Jehovah. Oh, blessed be the Lord, my son. Blessed be the Jehovah by you, my son. And, and yet, you'll see very quickly what is wrong here. 1,100 shekels of silver is a great, significant amount of money. It's several thousands of dollars. This is huge, huge money. So, verse 3, when he had returned the 1,100 shekels of silver, what a nice son stealing from his mother. So when he had returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a molded image. Wow, thanks, Mom. Now, therefore, I, I will return it to you. And you know, when you look at this, some things never change, do they? You know, when you read this and you see a son stealing this 1,100 shekels of silver from, a, from his mother, things haven't really changed, have they? Time and time again, I hear from parents whose children are hooked on drugs or they're involved in something. It could be gambling. They could have gotten in a, in a jam, and, and they steal from their parents. They steal from the mother and their father. You can't have anything loose in the house with a drug addict in your house. I knew a man who had a son who was a drug addict. The guy had to hide his checkbook. He had to hide everything of value in the house because if he didn't, it would end up at the pawn shop. And his son would sell it for money for drugs. And I've heard this over and over and over and over again. It's even happened in my own family. To see this kind of stuff. And all of you know too because it's happened to you perhaps. Or you know somebody who did. So th there's already what a mixed up time this is. Mixed with idolatry. Stealing. So, verse 4, he returned the silver to his mother, and his mother took 200 shekels of silver. Now, this 200 shekels of sil silver would amount to, again, several thousands of dollars. It would be uh, about a fifth or uh, a twentieth, 20 percent-ish of that total 1,100 shekels. And she gives it to a silversmith, and he made it into a carved image and a molded image. And, excuse me, they were in the house of Micah in the house of Micah. And we know that these kinds of things were very against the law of God. In fact, in Exodus, what does it say? The Ten Commandments, you shall serve no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generation. Notice of those that hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. I love that. God doesn't visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the sons to the fourth and the fifth generation, only to those who continue hating him and continue doing wrong. God will continue to bring judgment. God will continue to be heavy-handed on those. And notice this idolatry. It's a result of not dealing with it to begin with. Sin starts small, doesn't it? But it gets larger and larger and larger. And a little leaven leavens the whole lump. All it takes is just a little leaven, ladies, and you can put it in your bread. You can stick it in your warm oven and put a towel over it and come back in two hours, and the thing has got a big bump on it, and hope that your towel doesn't stick to it. Right? A little leaven leavens. It, it, it always gets worse. And the Danites that we're going to talk about tonight and the Ephraimites, 
Because they didn't completely drive out the enemy, the Canaanites, their idolatrous practices rubbed off on them. There's always a consequence, always a consequence. And this can happen to us as well. I remember when I was in college, there was a, uh, a man, a uh, young guy in the guitar department at Eastman School of Music. And we were both going to grad school. And he was a really wonderful guitar player, very talented, much better than I was. And he was an unbeliever. And he had, and I, I hate to say this, but, it, but it's so true and it fits what we're talking about. He had more of an influence on me. He was a very materialistic kind of guy. And that materialism rubbed off on me, and I was the one that's supposed to be influencing him, not the other way around. But funny how that happens, isn't it? Even as a believer, when we take company with people who are involved in certain things, they make it look so cool. They make it look so right. It, it feels so good. It feels so right. But it can be deadly. And there came a point where the Lord told me I had to stop hanging out with him. He literally spoke to me and just says, you need to stop hanging out with him because you're not doing him any good. He's actually having a, a, a more of an effect on you. But notice in verse 5, so the man Micah, notice he had a shrine. Does this sound like something that a man should have? An Ephraimite at the, at the least? He's got a shrine and he made an ephod and household idols. These idols are teraphim where they would sculpt these little images, sculpt out of wood or out of metal, little images in the shape of people or in the shape of some kind of idol, some kind of deity of the land, and they would bow down and worship these things, which we know wasn't good. So he shouldn't have made a shrine in, in, in a place of worship, because the place of worship at that time was where? It was in Shiloh, right? Back in Joshua chapter 18, when they came out of the out of the desert wanderings as they were coming into the promised land. In Joshua 18, they set up the tabernacle, and it was there until David brought it, the ark into Jerusalem and, and, the, and the tabernacle, and he made a new tabernacle for it. But the, the place of worship was in Shiloh, and it was in the land or in the tribe of Ephraim. It wasn't probably that far away from them, but yet they wanted something new. They wanted something new. And on top of that, this man made his son, who was also an Ephraimite, gave him a, uh, made him a priest. And the priests weren't supposed to be Ephraimites. They were supposed to be Levites. And only a specific family of the Levites, the Kohathites from Kohath, where Moses and Aaron came from, and his sons, they came from a specific line. They all had their roles, the Gershonites and the Merarites. They all had their roles in the temple, but the priests themselves were the sons of Aaron and Moses, and they were the ones who were supposed to do the sacrifices and deal with the Holy of Holies and all those things. So these were teraphim. And the first time we see this in the scripture, it's kind of interesting we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 31, and you recall that after Jacob had worked for 14 years for two wives, he originally wanted Rachel, the one that he saw that he loved. But Laban, her father, pulled a switcheroo on him on the wedding night, remember? He must have had a little too much wine. He woke up in the morning, and behold, it's Leah. That's kind of a disturbing thing to wake up to, realize you got the wrong sister. Hopefully they looked alike. Um, because uh, I hate to think that he was not that much aware. But notice when finally he has to work for Laban for another seven years for the one that he loves, Rachel. 
And then there came a time when it says in Genesis 31, verse 17, that Jacob rose and he set his sons and his wives on camels, and he carried away all of his livestock, all his possessions, which he had gained in his acquired livestock, which he had gained in Padan Aram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. Now Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the household teraphim, the household idols that were her father's. So here, his, his wife, the woman that he really loved more than anything, finally worked 14 years, finally got her. He's ready to take off, and she takes all the household idols and stuffs them under her, uh, under her camel. But these are the teraphim that we're talking about, the same thing that we see in verse 5 here in chapter 17. And it's interesting, and if you go to the Israel Museum today in Jerusalem, they have a bunch of these on display. You can actually see them. They look like little deities. And for some reason, it always seems to, um, these idols seem, that there's an exaggeration on the sex of the idol for some reason. So there's always a magnification of the sex of the idol that they're worshiping. And they find them all the time. I heard of a young Israeli kid was digging in the yard just uh, last year, I think, and, and found a teraphim in the yard. You know, and that, that's just, you, you dig in Israel and you find all kinds of stuff. Crazy. It's not like here you dig far enough and you um, find a bottle cap from 1957. You know, but over there you're, you're digging and you find really interesting things. So... So notice that the man Micah, verse 5, he had a shrine. He had made an ephod, which was a very priestly garment. He had household idols or teraphim. And he consecrated one of his sons, which we know was not a right thing to do because only the Aaron's sons were to be consecrated. And it says in verse 6, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this phrase is sort of like the refrain throughout the book of Judges. You hear this phrase again and again, again and again. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what's right in their own eyes. And that's a society that's headed for disaster. Whenever we do what's right in our own eyes, there is bound to be conflict. There is bound to be trouble. And we see that happening in our own culture today. When we fail to be obedient to the laws and the things that are placed before us and we decide to do something different, what results? What is always the result? Chaos. And what are we seeing on television? We're seeing chaos. It's because of the rebelliousness of man. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Well, I feel this way. Well, you know what? It doesn't matter what you feel. There's a lot of things. When I'm, when I'm driving my car and I feel like um, I'm not going the speed limit, or I feel like I'm going the speed limit, and I look down and I'm going 25 miles over the speed limit, and a, and a police officer pulls me over, he's going to say, uh, you were doing uh, 55 and a 30. What do you have to say about that? And I'll say, I, I, I didn't feel that. And he would probably go, well, it doesn't matter what you feel because you're getting a really large ticket. Points on your license. You're going to be going to that school for, you know, to get the, you know, your points off your license. It doesn't matter how I feel about things. I must be obedient. And I must submit myself to the authority that God has placed over us. The only time we are to say no is when it goes against the law of God, when it goes against his, his, his law. And you know what? It takes a, a government, a, a really bad place. They have to be in a really bad place for them to make us do something where it's against the law. But we have the right at that point, like Peter and Paul, or Peter and um, John, as they stood before the 
Pharisees and the Sadducees, you judge what's, rather what's right, to do what's right in the sight of God or to obey you. you know, they were preaching the gospel. They wanted to shut them up. We ought to obey God rather than to obey man. In that regard, they were right. If they were hurting people, they better stop. But they weren't. They weren't hurting anybody. But notice verse 7. Now, there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah of the family of Judah. He was a Levite. He was staying uh, and was staying there. And the man departed from the city of Bethlehem. This is kind of interesting because he's a Levite, but he's in Judah. He's living in Judah, and he's living in Bethlehem. And the man departed from the city of Bethlehem in Judah to stay where he could find a place. And then he came to the mountains of Ephraim to the house of Micah, this, this man who was now compromised, and as he journeyed. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I am on my way to find a place to stay. And you know, it makes you wonder, why didn't he stay? Why didn't he get involved in the tabernacle? You know, what was going on in the tabernacle at that time? We don't really know too much, but if it's indicative of everything else that was going on in that time, perhaps the priesthood in Shiloh became so corrupt um, at this time that there was, not, there was only a handful of them there serving. Maybe they didn't want anybody to be a part of the group. Maybe they were happy. There's a group of them, and they're like, you know, you can't come in. You know, you know what that's like, having a click, and nobody wants you in. Could it have been that? It could have been. Was he not welcome? Maybe the minister, or the ministry at the tabernacle was doing well, and he had a more progressive worldview. Maybe it was doing just fine, but he wanted to expand. He wanted things to be more progressive. He wanted to be more inclusive. After all, Christianity is so confining and limiting, isn't it? The narrow road. Narrow path. Ah, but anyone's available, anyone has the ability to be on that narrow path. But that's the way God is. Straight is the gate. Narrow is the path that leads to life. Solomon said it right. There's nothing new under the sun. So verse 10, Micah said to him, dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me. This phrase father is really just a, a, a word of honor. He really wasn't older than the man Micah. He was actually younger, but it was just a term of honor to this man. So Micah said to him, dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you 10 shekels of silver per year, a suit of clothes in your substance. And so the Levite went in. And then the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became like one of his own sons to him. And so Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Unfortunate now, we got this Levite now who is living a life of apostasy, really, abandoning his roots, abandoning the law of God. And now he's, uh, he seems to be very comfortable going into a house of a man, uh, an Ephraimite, and uh, being his priest to a bunch of false idols. He knows what he's doing, but doesn't seem to be too concerned about it. And remember, the tabernacle at that time was in Shiloh, not too far away. Not too far away. What happened? Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since I have a Levite as a priest. You know what he was treating that Levite like? Like a lucky charm. I've got this Levite. I got a Levite. So what that I'm worshiping, you know, this pile of mush, or, no, no, you know, I'm, I'm worshiping this piece of wood, but I got a Levite, man. I got a Levite. Things have got to be good. God's got to bless. It's like a, it's like a, a, a rabbit's foot in your, in your pocket. Man, I'm in a lucky, man, shiny nickel. I got a buffalo nickel in my pocket. Nothing can happen to me now. Operating on superstition, presuming upon God. 
And he viewed the Levite being with him as God condoning what he was doing. Isn't that funny how people do that? You can make anything spiritual. You can say to yourself, well, I need that new Bentley. I need to buy that new Bentley in Beverly Hills. You know why, Lord? Because, sure, I'm going to sell my father's inheritance, and I'm going to sell my mother's inheritance. You know, they're living with me now. They're very elderly. They won't know the difference. I've already got the money. So I'm just going to buy the Bentley because I can take people to church with this Bentley. And I know that that pleases you, Lord, for me to pick up these people in style, too. Nothing like the king, right? Children of the king, right? And they justify it. I'm going to buy this Bentley, really. And God's going, um, you mean the, uh, the Ford Explorer that you have that's a 2021 is not good enough? No, the Bentley, even though it only sits two people, you still want to do that? It doesn't really sit. I have no idea. I've never seen one. Actually, I probably have, but I don't know what it is, but it doesn't matter. So anyway, so he was treating this Levite like some kind of lucky charm. And then we get into verse 18, and it says, In those days, again, notice, circle it. (laughs) In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for itself to dwell in. For until that day, their inheritance among the tribes of Israel had not fallen to them. Now, this does not mean that they did not have a parcel of land, but rather they didn't drive out the inhabitants of the land like they should have, and they weren't happy with the land that they were given. It was a small parcel of land, but they were given it. And I almost wonder if the Lord gave them that as a test to see what they would do. And God told them, when you get into the land, finish off the um, going against the inhabitants that are in the land. Destroy them. Because they, I gave them time to repent, and now it's time for judgment. I'm going to allow you to dispossess the land. When you get into these different tribes, go in and take care of business. That was God's business. That wasn't murder. That was God's business. Do you know the difference? Sin was the problem unrepented of sin for hundreds of years. That's the problem. So, this does not mean that they didn't receive a land, but they didn't drive them out. In fact, what does it say in Joshua chapter 19? Let me just, you can read it. It says, the seventh lot, this is when um, Joshua and the elders of Israel were partitioning out the land after they had come into the land after crossing the Jordan. It says, the seventh lot came out from the tribe of the children of Dan according to their families, and the territory of their inheritance was Zorah, Eshtael, Ilar Shemesh, Shalalabin, Ajalon, Jethla, Elon, Timnah, Ekron, Etikah, Gibbethon, Bealath, Jehud, Benaberic, Gathrimon, Majarkon, and Rakon, with the region near Joppa, and the, water, and the border of the children of Dan went beyond these. So he gave them this land because, and then the land went beyond this because the children of Dan went up, and we're going to see that. They went up to the northern part of Israel to fight against Leshem, which is uh, a distance away uh, from the Lake Hula, which is far above the uh, Sea of Galilee. It's actually near the border of Lebanon and Syria. 
uh, a place that is now called Tel Dan. So they went up there and they took it and they struck it with the edge of the sword, took possession of it, dwelt in it, and they called Leshem Dan after the name of Dan their father. And this is the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Dan according to their families, these cities with their villages. And so for whatever reason, whether by cowardice or just being disobedient, the Danites did not drive out again the inhabitants. Um, something interesting in Judges chapter 1, it says this. If you read the whole chapter of Judges chapter 1, it talks about, the, the, again, these parcels of land that they were supposed to go in and they were supposed to eradicate the enemy. But each one, at one after another, it says in the tribe of Asher, they didn't drive out the inhabitants. The tribe of Benjamin, they didn't drive out the inhabitants. The list goes on, and every single one of them didn't do what God asked them to do. And finally, in Judges 1.34, it says, And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down to the valley. And the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Herez, in Ajalon, and in Shealbim. Yet, when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. And so, the Danites, now that they've inhabited this small piece of land, um, they, they couldn't go down into the valley because the, um, the other, um, the Amorites were there. And so they got frustrated and they thought to themselves, instead of um, praying to God and asking for God for direction, they decided, you know what, we're just going to go conquer some more land. God didn't tell them to do it. But they got frustrated, decided, we're going to do this. What a great idea. You know, that's a great idea. Let's just go ransack some other place and kill everybody and take their land. What a wonderful plan. So the children of Dan, verse 2, sent five men of their family from their territory, men of valor from Zorah and Eshtaol. Remember, these are the, this is the place where Samson was born, this area, same area, to spy out the land and search it. And they said to them, go search the land. So they went to the mountains of Ephraim. So they're on their way going from south or the middle of the country, going up north, and they, they're going through the mountains of Ephraim. So they stop at Micah's house and they lodge there. And so while they're at the house of Micah, they recognize the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and they said to him, who brought you here and what are you doing in this place? What do you have here? And he said to them, thus and so Micah did for me and he has hired me and I have become his priest. And so they said to him, please inquire of God. Wow, spiritual men. Isn't it funny how we can be such hypocrites and yet we can put on such an air of spirituality? Oh God, you're so great. And then nobody knows but you're embezzling money from the company. Oh God, you're so wonderful. I love you so much and my whole life is devoted to you. And nobody knows that you're, you have a mistress on the side. Oh, God, you're so great, and I love you with all my heart. I'll do anything for you, and you, you got a coke problem. These things happen. So they said, please inquire of God that we may know whether the journey on which we go will be prosperous. And notice the priest just said to him, yeah, go in peace. The presence of the Lord be with you on your way. There's no mention of him praying about it. Just, you know, he's just going to please everybody. Very progressive. Oh, it's, everything's good, man. Everything's good. I'm good. Are you good? Are you feeling good? I'm good. Doing well. So the five men departed and went to Laish. They saw the people who were there and how they dwelt safely in the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and secure. 
There were no rulers in the land who might put them to shame for anything. They were far from the Sidonians, and they had no ties with anyone. So this is a very quiet, still place. In fact, if you, um, on the screen here, you can see, maybe not. What more am I doing here? Okay, must be a bug. That's okay. Up in the northern part of Israel, right on the border of Lebanon, there is a little town, a little place um, called Dan. And there's a lot of history. When we went to Israel recently, we went to this place. And so this is where Dan is going. They're going from the middle of the country, and now they're going to travel all the way north, way past, way north of the Sea of Galilee, way past the Lake Hula, which is there uh, at that time. They're going to go even further north. And there's this civilization there, a town, quiet, secure, and they go in and they just ransack and kill everybody and they take it as their own. And uh, it's interesting because this place is going to be a center for idolatry. And again, we're going to see, remember how we talked about these, uh, this Micah who was uh, involved in idolatry and then now the tribe of Dan gets hooked up with him. Now that we're going to see something really interesting and I don't want to spoil it, so let's go ahead and go on here. So then the spies, verse 8, they came back to their brethren at Zorah and Eshtaol. And that is uh, Eshtaol and Zorah, again, is the place where Samson was born. And um, so they come back to this place and they say to their brethren, or they say to them, what is your report? You spied out the land, what would what, you see? So they said, arise and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and indeed it is very good. Would you do nothing? Do not hesitate to go and enter to possess the land. And when you go, you will come to a secure people in a large land, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is on the earth. So 600 men of the family of the Danites, they went from their place, and they went from there, from Zorah and Eshtaol, armed with weapons of war. And when they came up and encamped in Kirjath-Jerim in Judah, therefore they call that place Mahanay-Dan to this day. There it is, west of Kirjath-Jerim. You guys know where that is, right? And so, and they passed from there to the mountains of Ephraim, and they came where? To the house of Micah, this priest, this man who is completely given over to idolatry, total compromise. He's got a, a Levite there now with him, right? So the five men who had gone to spy out the country previously of Laish, they answered and said to their brethren, do you know that there are in these houses an ephod, household idols, a carved image, and a molded image? Now, therefore, consider what you should do. In other words, you might want to check that out and wink, wink, you know what to do. Right? So they're going to go there and they're going to plunder this, this place. This place. So they turned aside there and they came to the house of the young Levite man, to the house of Micah, and they greeted him. And the 600 men armed with their weapons of war who were of the children of Dan, they stood by the entrance of the gate. So every, most cities had a gate where business was conducted. And so this 600-man army is outside the gate. And the, this is history, folks. This is not just an allegory. 
okay? And so they come with these weapons of war. And I don't know about you, but when I read these things, I like to put myself in the place of either the person that's being attacked or the person that's attacking. And just kind of get in your mind and look at a map. And, and um, it's really wonderful to kind of uh, imagine things like that because you get a better understanding of what's happening. So when, they went, uh, in the, when these went into Micah's house, they took the carved image, notice. They took the ephod. They took the household idols and the molded image. And the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said to him, be quiet. Put your hand over your mouth, kid, and come with us. Be a father. In other words, another term of honor. Be a father and a priest to us. It is better for you to be a priest to the household, or I'm sorry, is it better for you to be a priest to the household of one man or that you be a priest to a tribe and a family in Israel? Cha-ching! So he's thinking to himself, what an opportunist now. He was very happy to dwell with a man, Micah, and now better digs have come along. Wow, instead of just one man, I can be a priest of this whole tribe. Opportunity knocks, and he goes running. So the priest's heart was glad, and he took the ephod, the household idols, and the carved image, and took his place among the people. Excuse me. Then they returned and departed and put the little ones, the livestock, and the goods in front of them. And as they do this, picture this, the deception of this. Usually when uh, an army goes to war, they always put the, the, you know, the, army, you know, the, the men up front that are really you know, their front line. But they put the little ones, they put the livestock and all their stuff first. It, it gives the semblance of what? Peace. It just hit me today as I read this because normally you don't do that. You don't do that. But they're going to bamboozle the, the Leshems, the, the people in Leshem, and make them feel like, wow, when these people actually start showing up on our doorstep, the, the, the kids are coming first, and then the livestock, wow, these people must be about peace. If they were really here for war, they'd put the, uh, you know, the, the Jeeps with the 50 calibers on the front, right? But they don't. So... They were, when they were a good way, good way from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house, they gathered together and they overtook the children of Dan and they called out to the children of Dan. And so they turned around and they said to Micah, what is wrong with you? Why have you gathered such a company? So the Danites turn around to this small group of men, you know, what ails you? Why have you gathered such a company? And so he said, you've taken away my gods, which I have made. Any t- uh, spoiler alert. Whenever somebody takes away your God, that's probably a good indication that it's really not God. If your God can be taken from you, chances are it's not real. Aren't you glad that God can't be taken away from you? He's with you to the end. He took my gods. I can't believe it, you filthy radical. Took my gods. I lost God. Remember that? When Mary, when they were, Where, where's Jesus? We, we forgot God. We lost God. And I can imagine the, the God the Father just going, oh my. <laughs> so he said, you have taken away my gods, which I made, and the priest, and you have gone away. Now what more do I have? How can you say to me what ails you? And the children of Dan said to him, do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry men fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household And then the children of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his house. Naturally so. He's got this big army. They're basically saying, 
shut your mouth, kid, and turn around and go home, and you'll have your life, and your family will live. Sounds like a pretty good deal. I think I'll do it. So, verse 27, they took the things Micah had made and the priests which belonged to him, and they went to Laish, to a quiet people and secure, and they struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. You go there today, and they actually found the foundations of, of some of this stuff that's burned. There's so much that happened up there in Tel Dan. It's amazing. It's right at the headwaters of the, it's right below Mount Hermon, and there are some tributaries that come out of Mount Hermon that um, uh, streams of rivers that, that go right through the town of Dan, and you walk right over one of them. And I got to tell you, the water was incredible. I could have put pictures up, but the water is crystal clear mountain water, cold and fresh, and it's raging like a river. I mean, it is just hauling. And you walk over a bridge, and you're just like, man, I hope I don't fall over. I'll never be seen again. You remember what that was like, right? Remember? And so um, it's a wonderful place. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, and they had no ties with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rahab. So they rebuilt the city, and they dwelt there, and they called the name of the city Dan after the name of Dan, their father, who was born to Israel. However, the name of the city was formerly Laish, or Leshem. And so then the children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image. So they're setting up shop. And where'd they get this image? They got it from Micah down in the, in the mountains of Ephraim. So you can see just the, 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 the parallel, the, the progression of rebellion and idolatry that's ultimately going to lead there. And so they get there and they, uh, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, um, it could be actually the, the, the grandson of uh, Moses, many believe, and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. So this center of worship up in Dan continued until the captivity. So we're talking hundreds of years, hundreds of years that went by. And in fact, if you remember, remember this little summary that I gave you? We look now at uh, Micah's idolatry. We looked at the Danites stealing the graven image and the Levite from Micah's home. We've looked already at the Danites' destruction of Leshem. Um, or Laish, and what's going to happen now? What's going to happen now? If we fast forward in history a few hundred years to the dividing of the kingdom after Solomon, you remember that after Solomon, when he died, the kingdom was divided. The, the northern ten tribes really became Jeroboam's, and the southern two tribes became Rehoboam's. And you remember that Jeroboam was an idolater. In fact, Jeroboam was from Ephraim himself. And what did he do? What did he do? In 1 Kings chapter, I'll just leave this up here, but let me read some passages to you. This is really interesting because now Jeroboam, this man who was from Ephraim himself, now he finds himself to be the king over the northern ten tribes. And he knows that there's a, there's a town up in Dan that's fully, fully established in idolatry fully established. And so in 1 Kings 12, verse 25, it says, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there, and also he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these go up to offer, uh, offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord. So remember, Jeroboam's in the northern ten tribes. Jerusalem and the temple is in Judah, 
right, down in the, north, in the southern two tribes. So Jeroboam is trying to establish something so that people won't be tempted to go down and worship in the temple, because once they do, they're going to be like, you know, I'm tired of making this trip. Let's just go back to Judah. Let's just go down there. So in order to keep them from doing that and to offer them another option, another option, what does he do? Therefore, the king asked advice. I wonder who he asked the advice from. They made two calves of gold and said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron said the same thing in Exodus 32. Actually, the people said that to Aaron after he had made the golden calf. Here are your gods, O Israel, that got you out of Egypt. And Jeroboam says the same thing. And he set one up in Bethel, and he put the other in Dan. In verse 30, now these, this thing became a sin for the people, went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made shrines on the high places. He made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam ordered, ordained a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah. The Feast of Tabernacles was on the 15th day of the 7th month. And he says, I'll do one better. We'll do it on the 15th day of the 8th month. And we'll, we'll have our idolatrous practice, and we'll just continue doing that. And it's so much smoother for people to worship an idol than it is to worship the living God if their hearts aren't right, right? So, so we did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And at Bethel, he installed the priests of the high places which he had made. So he made offerings on the altar which he had made at Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month, in the month which he had devised in his own heart, notice, And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar and burned incense. It's interesting because this altar is still there in Dan. We visited it. A couple years ago, actually, the last time I was there, they they actually had, uh, there was more of it there. There was a frame, and you could actually see the frame of what it looked like. It was, um, it was, I believe it was the same size as the one in Jerusalem. They built a replica of it there, but instead of offering sacrifices and real offerings of worship, which they weren't supposed to do anyway, they had idolatrous sacrifices. They sacrificed children on that altar. They did all kinds of wickedness. They should have been worshiping in Shiloh, but they decided they wanted to do something different. And that altar is still there this day. You can visit it, and you can see it for yourself. It's amazing. And so what happens now? When we look at 2 Kings uh, chapter 17, what ultimately happens after this? God, for years, gives them space to repent, these northern ten tribes, for their idolatry. In fact, out of all the kings of the northern ten tribes, not one single one of them was a good king. They were all pagans. They all worshipped at the altars of Dan and Bethel. And they continued doing this year after year, year after year. God sends prophets rising up early and telling them, you better turn away, you better turn away. Ah, forget it, you're an old man, go away. And they keep doing it, they keep doing it. And finally God says, now tell them that judgment's coming. Judgment is coming. He warns them enough, and finally the hammer falls. And in 2 Kings chapter 17, it says, Now the king of Assyria went throughout all the land, went up to Samaria, and besieged it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried away Israel to um, Assyria and placed them in Hala and by the Habor, the river of Gozan. They would actually, when they would transport the Israelites, what they would do is they'd put hooks through the underneath their tongue, in their jaw, and it would come out the bottom part. They'd put it in their mouth, and they would actually 
put them by chains together and they would stick those hooks and they would lead them away. And God forbid one of you should trip because you're all chained together, right? The Assyrians were the cruelest. They were the cruelest people. And they took those tribes, those northern 10 tribes captive in 722 BC. And so when we think about this, We look at verse 31 here. So, so they set up for themselves Micah's carved image, which he had made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. What a shame. That, that, the last verse in there is, is really the shame of it all. It was still there. Lonely. <laughs> Wondering where everybody else is at. But do you see what had happened? Do you see the progression your sin will find you out, and, and, and you, know, you reap what you sow. Isn't that exactly what happened? First Micah, and then, the, and then the Levite, in apostasy, compromise, worshiping false gods. Then the Danites, discontent where God had placed them, decide to go up, and they, they just happen to come upon this Micah, find out what he's up to, and then they... They, the spies continue to go up north to Laish, and they go, wow, this is a great place. They come back. Hey, that's great. Let's get an army together. So they do, and they come back again. Now with 500 men, they destroy this man's house, or they take his idols, take his priests, and then they go up, and they kill everybody in Laish. And then while they're up there, they set up an idolatrous uh, worship center. Years go by, years go by. Now Jeroboam comes into power. He sets up golden idols, one in that same exact place, Dan, and then another one in Bethel. Time goes on, time goes on. God says, repent, repent. Forget it, we're, not, we're going to continue doing what we want to do. God finally brings judgment, brings them into captivity. Do you see the progression? There's always a progression, and very rarely happens overnight. It's usually these small little drippings. Small little things, small little compromise here, small little compromise there, and eventually it leads you completely away. Now, why do I bring this up? Turn with me and we'll, we'll end here in Romans chapter 8. How can we look at this today? I mean, the obvious answer is don't do anything stupid. <laughs> right? <laughs> but to be a little more uh, refined, uh, let's look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and we'll finish here. The exhortation for us today. We'll just look here. Beginning in verse 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Notice, who do not walk according to the flesh. Was the Ephraimites, were the Danites, were they walking according to the Spirit, or were they walking according to the flesh? Certainly walking according to the flesh. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. And he condemns sin in the flesh, that the righteousness requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. 
For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is what? It's life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity or hatred against God, for it is, in, it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And notice what he says, but you are not in the flesh, Romans, you Romans, you Calvary Chapel of Rochesterians. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Notice, you have to be born again. The spirit of God in you means you're born again. You can have the baked sails and do all the fine things, but unless you, the spirit of God has indwelt you, you are not a Christian. It doesn't matter what you do, how you look, how much money you give. It's not going to happen. You must be born again. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You can finish reading that chapter. There's a lot of, there's some excellent exhortation there. But the idea is don't walk in the flesh. These Ephraimites, this man Micah, the Levite, the Danites, they were all walking according to their own thing. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They were walking in the flesh, and God requires us to walk in the Spirit. And isn't it so much better to walk in the Spirit? Isn't it nice to be putting your head on the pillow at night knowing that you've done well that day, that you've confessed all your known sin to God, and anything that's undone, you've done? It's a good thing to serve the Lord, isn't it? It's a good thing to be right with God. So many people are not right with God. So many people are not right with God. And they have to take pills to go to sleep. And yet you, we have the peace of God. We have the peace of God because we have peace with God. We have the peace with God because of what our mediator has done on our behalf. Amen? So let's purpose this week to walk in the Spirit. Be reading your Bibles. Be in prayer. Be careful. We live in a slippery, slippery world. It's time for us, folks. It's time for the church to rise again. Not with guns and knives. <laughs> Not a militia. It's time for us to rise and be like our Father in heaven, to be like Jesus Christ, to walk with him and to do the right things, to be totally different from the world. The world hates one another right now. Everybody's hating each other. Let's do something different. Let's love one another, regardless of what we see, regardless of what you may even be struggling with. Let's love one another. It's a choice we have to make. It's a choice. Remember, love is a choice. Let's make that choice to love. Amen. Let's stand. Father, we thank you for this time, and we pray, God, that you would make us men and women, Lord, who love. And Lord, help us to, to draw near to you this week. Lord, come in clean with anything that we have uh, engaged ourselves in, anything that we have uh, dwelt uh, with our mind on. And Lord, things that aren't right, maybe even actions that we've done, Father. Please forgive us and cleanse us and heal us and pour your spirit out upon us. And Father, I pray for anyone here tonight 
that if there's anyone here in this room that does not know you, that has been wondering and, and, and questioning of their salvation, Lord, I pray that you would touch them right now and that they would even come forward afterwards and that we could pray with them and for them. And for those of you online, if there's anyone that, that you, you feel the same way, maybe for the first time in your life, you're like, you know what, I've, I've had enough. Please, please, I beg you, don't let this day go without talking to someone. Talk to a friend. Talk to any one of us. Talk to your Father in heaven. Get on your knees and say, Lord, I've been playing games with you. I have no idea where I'm at. I've been playing games too long, God, and you know it. Forgive me, Jesus Christ. Cleanse me and heal me and take up residence in my heart. And Lord, when we do that, we know that you will not cast us out, but you will say welcome to the family of God when we confess our sin to you and receive the blood of Christ upon our life who only can forgive us from our sin. And so, Lord, please do that to the family tonight. Renew us. And for those of us who have known you for a while, Lord, help us to rededicate with newness. Restore and renew us, Lord, by the power of your Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.